Hi, welcome to Scooby What's New, Queer, and Delicious, a podcast by me, Lou. You can also call me Louise, and I use they, she pronouns. You're welcome to use these interchangeably. I'm glad you've started listening to my show, and I hope you enjoy the story. This podcast is a story. It's about a lot of things, but it's a story. I'd love to start at the very beginning as far as I can trace it, but I think it would be better to start with my own beginning. Like all myths, legends, and stories, sometimes gaps are filled in to make it make sense. Any detail I give a story is through my experience and research. All views expressed on this podcast are my own. As far as the relation to Scooby-Doo, the popular franchise, this is an inspired podcast. Scooby and the Mystery Gang taught us how to be great sleuths, exposing a story piece by piece until clues made sense and fit together to reveal the true villain. Our current social tradition is to ignore the paranormal conditions, side effects, causes, and or contributions to these mysteries. If you jump into this revamped mystery machine with me, Lou, your host, I won't disappoint. I've gathered my facts, listened to my intuition, and explored the mysteries closest to me. Buckle up, because we're about to start with the origins of this mystery. Once upon a time, there was a kid. Not quite a tomboy, not quite a mommy's little girl, mostly because at any time I could be both, which always made me feel like I didn't have a place, like I was neither, like I didn't belong. This started to become consequential for a few reasons. First, gender became apparent to me as soon as I spent time with peers. For me, this happened as early as daycare. I can actually remember parts of daycare which seem wild to me now. Kindergarten starts grade school here in the U.S., and in Washington, it's five years old that a child becomes a student. So I was super young and therefore totally misunderstood why me and my peers were different. And in a community that is stuck perpetually 20 years in the past, we like to joke about it now, it wasn't the type of misunderstanding that a young girl should have. It was burdened upon me to learn exactly how a young girl should behave around a boy and further, to be groomed into a woman enough to matchmake with a man. This gender binary confused me from this point on. Secondly, my feelings of not belonging were consequential because not only were they somewhat innate, but they became divisive over time. If I couldn't be who I wanted, I was defiant, especially when it came to men, father figures in particular. You see, I learned as early as these same daycare memories that I didn't really belong to the head of the household that raised me. I was another man's child, and my mom was married to the man with deep-seated traditional values that were abused onto him as he grew up. I had a different father, a deceased one, and this made me illegitimate. It all started when I woke up from my dreams as a kid to an unfamiliar sound. I was so little just a baby, when I came out of my room one night to check on my mom. I swore that I heard her crying. Either the memory is so foggy or I was so sleepy because I only remember a few details from that night. When my eyes were open enough to see my mom sobbing into her lap on the couch, I asked her why she was crying. She looked at me. I remember the look. 
Her expression said, I should just tell her. So she did. She told me why my sense of not belonging was also accompanied by a tinge of abandonment. She told me that Ricky Lee White was his name. She told me that he was my father and that he died. She spent a while trying to conceptualize death for me in a way that wouldn't leave me scarred for life. He was in heaven, she would repeat, as if I could conceptualize that either. I remember her look when she finished spilling her guts out to just a baby. I blinked at her blankly because she kept sobbing. She grew up telling me that she grieved for me. That because I wasn't old enough to understand death and its complexities attached to my life, she'd have to bear the full weight of grief for the both of us. That may have been true at the time. She probably did carry an enormous weight that I'd only begin to imagine as a young adult. All this trauma was unburied the minute my mom and stepdad brought up a legal name change for me. My dad wanted to adopt me in his own way. He wanted me to have his last name. There was never any formal adoption, but he tried to bring me back from this feeling of not belonging. My parents waited until I was beginning kindergarten to ask me what my preference of name was, but it came sort of in the form of an ultimatum. I had to absorb my stepdad's trauma and history too. He was to become my actual father, no matter what. The choice was a full takeover of my name, my first, his last, or I could keep both names, my first, Ricky's last, and then Jim's last. There was no as it is for my parents, no keeping Ricky's name just to preserve that connection. And there was no letting me change the entire thing now that I was open to the idea that a name could be changed. What's it to a five-year-old anyways? After all, it was a lot to consider. I must have been so self-aware at this moment because I recognized how uneasy this name change situation was making me. And I chose to do what I thought would make future me the happiest. I chose to keep both names. There was no way that I would let my parents erase this part of me, a part that seemed as dead and gone as Ricky was. I can't tell you that I ever had a real connection with Ricky, my father who passed away when I was only two years old. I don't remember him at all. I can only get glimpses from my mom's stories and old photos. She lives in this distant past that is barely accessible to me. Something inside me was aflame with a desire to know. Around this same time, the younger years, before I was deep into grade school, My parents used to throw these magnificent 4th of July parties. They were young and partied hard, so things in my neighborhood got rowdy. Cops were called multiple years in a row just to quiet us. I remember these parties, but I don't remember this particular instance that I'm about to explain. My mom tells the story because it spooked her. I don't know every detail, but she said that as I watched the fireworks one night at one of these parties and I was looking up in the sky, I rushed to tell her that I had seen my dad. She pointed to Jim, who was somewhere off in the party doing something, telling me that my dad was over there. I said to her, no, my dad, I see my dad in the sky. And it dawned on my mom that I'd seen Ricky in the fireworks. 
This story is peculiar to me in a few ways. First, my mom remembers the story and I do not. It leads me to believe that I didn't come up with the story. I was telling my truth that night at the party. He was really depicted in the flashing lights in the sky. Further, I was too young to understand that this type of thing would draw any attention to me or raise spook factor for my parents. I wouldn't have just concocted it for giggles. The crazy part is that I tell her about my dad in the sky, and this word dad would have only been used to describe Jim, not Ricky. The fact that I'm recognizing another man in the sky means I retained the part about having a second father and him being somewhere else, but I couldn't have known that there would be a lingering connection. I wouldn't have, that young, understood what a vision like this meant in terms of a life-after-death connection. And I don't know for sure when this happened compared to when I was told about Ricky's death. This, to me, is a very paranormal occurrence. I always thought this story was funny. I always thought, how odd. I mean, what a weird thing for little me to have done. I always enjoyed firework displays. And when my mom retold my dad this story and told other people, she would look toward me with the same I live your grief face that she loves to give me. It gave the story a level of pathetic that warranted the attention she wanted. I didn't realize until much later that this distortion I had, these stupid daddy issues, would be so personally concerning. I grew up to mask my feelings and became pretty blank-faced about Ricky and the issue of fatherhood. If my mom carried the grief, then what did I have left to do? In reality, I carried a white-hot rage. I carried the genes of another person who I'd never really get to know through the lens of my own, and that bothered me. The way that she told his story was just as pathetic as the version of mine she loved to tell. We were all her sob stories. There would be no just getting to know Ricky. She looked at me again one day, frustrated with my teenage rage and ballsy attitude, and started to lecture me about how I needed to save face in front of Jim's parents one day when we were at a restaurant. She stopped mid-sentence to tell me that I looked like him. I'd been growing up, so I looked different than this weird little kid that I was in these previous stories, but in particular, I'd made a face that looked like a spitting image of Ricky. She said I looked exactly like him. Who? I knew who, but I wanted her to say it. Your dad, Ricky, she said. I looked like Ricky. She couldn't say his name outright. Was it shameful? I could only guess. It was like she spat in my face when she looked at her shoes and then left the one-sided conversation we were just having. I sat back after she'd left. How could I, still a child, control how much I looked like my father, especially when I was in an argument? Why did looking like my father bring my mom so much sorrow? Why was I left responsible for handling how this was impacting me? Teenage me had some serious baggage and didn't know how to open up about this burning inside of me. Now, I've told you a lot about myself and my story. Because I'm now a self-aware adult and someone who can reflect on the past in ways that helps me grow as a person... I can confidently tell you that I've grown through my traumas in dramatic ways. I'm able to talk about my story in a way that is healing and restoring.
I don't want to minimalize the sorrow that my family felt after Ricky passed, even though I forced myself to mask my own feelings. Opening up to this connection between my biological father and myself has proved to be more interesting than anything. It's like opening up a time capsule. What comes next in the podcast is a story about Ricky, as far as I know it. The story of generations and trauma, the story about death and perseverance through grief, the story with a paranormal influence and numerous curiosities. If you're interested in seeing how it all unfolds for me and my family, stay tuned. Thanks for listening to part one of the series. I bet this episode felt like entering a sad time machine. I will continue to be vulnerable and empathetic to the telling of the story. I was an empty shell of a kid because of how emotionally exhausting being a part of a family was for me. I've grown, not because things got better and more sunshine and roses, but because my resilience has shown strength. It carries me to an even greater place. As I continue recording and producing more episodes, you can follow along on Instagram at liminally.lu and message me here on Instagram if you feel like it. I'm not letting you go just yet, though. There is a fundamentally disturbing question raised in this episode that tickles the hairs on anyone's neck from time to time. What happens when we die? Is there anything else left to experience once we've suffered our human fate? This question comes from the beginning of the story, which is where a baby finds out about a man dying. And generally, when we're told about death, we grieve it pretty quickly as adults. But as kids, something else happens. We learn about death and we learn about what that means through our communities, through our families, and through other people. I learned about death really young and I know a lot of other people live their formative years experiencing death. I'm not sure of the grander perspective when it comes to the paranormal community in all its glory. But I do know that what I love about investigating the paranormal is that it sort of assumes that there is something beyond us, whether it's another dimension, another timeline, a place like heaven, hell, purgatory, a spirit world, an enlightened plane, the list goes on. I think because the choices seem endless upon our own imaginations, it must be somewhat possible that these places, these things exist or some things similar. The cycle of life and death seems infinite. Like, there's a chance that the most boring thing will happen to me once I do reach my final destination. And that's that I will just die. For some reason, I don't find it congruent with the cyclical state of nature. So I don't find it likely a chance that I will just die. I don't know what gave birth to my own, let alone humanity's consciousness. Therefore, I do not know what happens to this energy once my biomaterial is decomposing. The family I forged throughout my life will be in charge of my dead body, but I want to be in charge of my fate. I have extreme will, neither to live nor die, or I guess I'd say to live and then to die. I just have a lot of will, I guess. I tell you this because if I were to die in this hypothetical conscious energy I'm talking about does get displaced from my human body back into the universe to be dispersed elsewhere, 
I'd like to be more or less in charge of that disbursement. Death is scary because it forces us to see an end to our limited experiences as humans on Earth. It's also scary because if life and death are cyclical in any way, we have to make way for new, unknown experiences. I have to admit at this point that I'm rather spiritual. I put credence in the idea that there is something beyond us and that we are intricately linked through our availability spiritually to the beyond. I also believe that once someone puts credence into something, it manifests as a possible reality. For instance, my grandma recently told me that she and her sisters have experienced their mom's spirit in since her passing. My grandma had a conversation with this spirit in her work break room. The nature of the visit was a sort of family check-in. Around the same time, one of my grandma's sisters tells her that she keeps seeing their mom in her dreams. It scared her until my grandma informed her that she thought their mom was an angel, a positive force that watches over them. Then, my grandma reveals that she's recently felt her mom's watchful spirit in the clouds as she stares toward the sky on long drives with my grandpa. I hate to say this, but my family is very simple-minded. When they talk about this stuff, it's because they accept this as a full version of reality. It's not made up. Believe me, I've tried being skeptical. There's no bandwidth for the type of dishonesty and creativity that is this storytelling requires of my grandma and her family. So, my grandma strongly believes in the modern Christian conceptualization of an angel, that it's a positive, watchful spirit of sorts, and that it can take a physical form to interact with us. She puts enough credence into her own beliefs that this strikes me as odd, as paranormal. Did my grandma and her sisters turn their mother into an angel, and did she come through the veil that separates the beyond and ourselves long enough to have a conversation with my grandma? It's curious. It could be one version of a manifested reality, a reality that comforts my grandma greatly as she continues to age. I put a lot of credence in the idea, like I said, there's something beyond us, and that we are linked to that beyond through our spiritual availability. Now, I don't know how available spiritually my grandma and my family actually is. I would say that we lean towards the the side of being highly sensitive and highly trustworthy in the sense that it doesn't matter what exactly we are believing, but that there is something very close to us to believe in. Death is no stranger, I like to say. Not very loud, because if death is listening, I don't want him to think we should meet face to face just yet. I keep my spirituality for a multitude of reasons. But to understand the complexities of life and death is just one of the many good reasons. I don't know if I'll ever be the type of person that has it all figured out and knows exactly how to answer each thought-provoking question as, what happens after we die? I won't ever be afraid of the question, though. I'll stop waxing so much and end by asking you all to answer the same question. What do you think happens after we die? I'd love to hear your perspective. Further, what would your ideal life after death scenario be? Let me know and make sure to follow the podcast and my Instagram account at liminally.lou if you've enjoyed your ride in the mystery machine. 
I will continue to create these podcast episodes weekly. So until next time, bye.